Good? So, just so you guys know, this is a brand new keyboard. We got rid of that old clunker. And so the, the giving of God's people makes things like that possible. But this is a nice unit. It was highlighted a little bit there. I don't know if you noticed the difference, but I did, so that's all that matters. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Let me make a few announcements myself. I want to remind you that we are starting a new set of small groups in March. So we did have someone um, put down on the card last week that they're interested in small groups. They're not part of small groups. If you have any interest, I just ask that on the connection card before you leave today, drop it in the, one of the boxes and just mark small groups. It's right on the bottom of the card. And we will call you this week and talk to you about that. Also, this has been a very busy week. On Sunday night, we had a Valentine's couple dinner, and we maxed out. We had 20 couples, 40 people show up. If you were there, can you raise your hand? Did you guys have a good time? Yeah? Good. Then on Tuesday night, we had a women's meeting, and there were 35 women packed into Jason and Alyssa Wine's home. That was pretty exciting. And we want you to know if you missed that or you're still trying to get in on that, it's not too late. It's not too late. And we would love to have you be a part of that. It's going to be a woman's Bible study. It was more meet and greet and talk about the book this last Tuesday. But the study officially begins next month. Is that right, sweetie? So talk to my wife or talk to someone at the resource table in the back, and we would love for you to get plugged into that. And then on Friday night, we had the men's meeting. Now, I don't normally try to shame people into things. I don't think it's appropriate. But there were 35 women, (laughs) 35 women at the women's event, and there were 14. Thank you, Alyssa. 14. And we had a great time. But look, we'd like to double that. We'd like to double that. We'd like you men to come out. We think it's important. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. We're not just doing this for fun. We're sure there's a lot of other things you could do on Friday, but we think it's important for men to get together and come around the Word and build relationship with one another. Women already know that. Men have a hard time getting that. So we want to, I want to encourage you just one more time. It's every third Friday of every month we get together as men, and every third Tuesday of every month the women are going to be getting together. Okay, let's get into our study. We're going to be in Mark chapter 6. We've moved to a new chapter. Mark chapter 6, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. If you're using one of those church Bibles, you can turn to page 841, and that will bring you to Mark chapter 6. I've entitled this message, Offended by Jesus. Offended by Jesus. By the way, one other thing I would ask you to do is invite somebody to come with you next week that hasn't been here. And look around the room. If you see someone that you normally see and they're not here, give them a call. Give them a call. I don't know their number. Okay, the next time they're here, get their number (laughs) and tell them you want it because you want to call them next time they don't show up. (laughs) What does it mean to offend? I titled the message, Offended by Jesus. What does that mean? Well, I'm going to give you a simple definition. It means to hurt somebody's feelings or cause resentment, irritation, anger, or displeasure. That would be a simple definition of offend. We use the word offend In our culture, a lot. A lot. It seems like people today are offended for almost anything or any reason. And the question I have, just for you to consider, is why is it always assumed that the party that causes the offense is in the wrong? Why is it never thought that maybe we need to change our thinking? Or something about us needs to change so that we would no longer be offended. It doesn't seem to go that way, though. It's, it's almost like our culture has become like little babies. And I say that because sometimes I have bad luck with little babies. I, get, I try to make them smile, and, and they take my impressions on my face as scary and awful. And they begin to cry, and... and and, and we are like that in this society. We can do the, the simplest thing, and all of a sudden the other person is screaming, offense, offense, how dare you? Recently it was reported in the news that the former Egyptian president, Mubarak, maybe you've heard about this, 
would not take our president's phone calls because he was offended that our president told him he needed to step down immediately. I don't know if you've been seeing all the the interaction between Egypt and their president and stuff going on. Really? You wouldn't take his phone calls? I mean, whether you agree with how the president handled that, that's not the point. But I would think a man, a president, a leader of a country could could take the guy's phone call and just tell him, listen, I didn't like what you did, but he's so offended, I'm not going to answer the phone. And that's just how we are. Offenses arise when someone does or says something that another person does not like or agree with. And there seems to be an intense pressure on people today to not be offensive in any way to anybody. Like I said, we've become a nation afraid to say anything for fear that we will be beaten with a stick by the offensive police. To keep out of trouble, we've called, we have developed something called euphemisms. Euphemisms. I'll define that for you. They are substitutions for expressions that may offend or suggest something unpleasant to the receiver, using instead an agreeable or less offensive expression. Let me give you an example of a few. See if you can figure them out. I say armed intervention. And I mean war. I say between jobs. And I mean unemployed. Let's see if you can get these. I say categorical inaccuracy or disinformation. And I mean lies. (laughs) Good, you're learning. Good, good. You'll like this one. I say character line. Wrinkle. Right, exactly. Good. How about this one? You've heard this before. There's a movie named after this. Collateral damage. Civilian casualties. That's what that means. How about full-bodied? Obese. How about adult entertainment? Pornography. I hate that one. I hate that they would put the word entertainment next to pornography. How about revenue enhancement? Our government likes this term. Taxes. Exactly, Henry. You got it. I think BMW came up with this one. (laughs) Pre-owned. Used. I don't drive a used car. Yes, you do. (laughs) Yes, you do. Gosh. You drive a $40,000 used car. How about inventory leakage? Businesses use this. Theft, shoplifting. Yes. How about vertically challenged? (laughs) Short, short, yes. (laughs) Don't call somebody short. They don't like that. A real problem arises when Christians apply this thinking to their faith There's nothing gentleman about it, is there? That's another euphemism. Good point. When Christians apply this type of thinking to their faith and their proclamation of Jesus Christ by trying to soften what people might find offensive about the message of Christianity or remove the offenses altogether. I'll just give you one that you know. Listen, the Bible's clear. You guys know this. Jesus is the only way to heaven. You can't get around it. John 14, 6. I don't care. You can try to interpret it 15,000 different ways from Sunday. It still comes out with the same meaning. He is the only way to heaven. Well, guess what? That is offensive to all other religions. So should we stop saying that? Should we back away from that? Because I offend another religion that says, no, you are not the only way? People will go to hell, beloved, without Jesus as their Savior. Look at John 3.36. Not right now. But that is the truth. That is what the Bible says. Well, that definitely sounds offensive. It definitely does. So maybe I can soften it by saying it like this. Jesus can help the afterlife challenged. Would that be better? Would that be better? What do you think? 
Being offensive just to irritate people is wrong. That's wrong. But the hard reality is the news of Jesus Christ will offend people. It will. And Jesus never altered or softened His message to make people feel more comfortable. So why would we? We, as followers of Jesus Christ, need to say what the Bible says in love. In love. And that's important, because sometimes we miss that. We need to say it in love, and we shouldn't become discouraged if someone doesn't like what we're saying, as long as it's the truth and it's done in love. Because the reality is, beloved, many times they won't like what you say. They won't. Is it loving to hide the truth? Is it loving? I mean, think about this. Think of what we're doing in our society. If our children were offended by the fact that we were telling them the truth about a particular situation, if you continue to do that, you are going to be destroyed, either by your friends or me, whoever gets to you first. Whatever, bad things are going to happen to you. And they said, I, can't. I am so offended by you, mom or dad. So what do we do? Do we back off? Oh, okay, sorry, I'll shut my mouth. And, you know, it's better that I just maintain some level of peace in my home than to offend my, my erring child. Is that what we do? You know, some people do. Peace at all costs, beloved. That's not real peace. And to try to establish some type of pseudo-peace within Christianity, even men of the book soften the message. Or pull back, trying not to make anything sound offensive. Let's look at the text together. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Verse 1. He went away from there, that is Jesus, and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joses, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his relatives and in his household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. This morning, if you have your bulletin, we'll be looking at three aspects of the surprising interaction between Jesus and his hometown so that we will not lose heart when people refuse the Jesus we proclaim. That's where we're going this morning. Let's give some context here. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. It says that Jesus went away from there. Where is there? Well, it is where he was in Mark chapter 5, near the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum. And we talked about that last week. While in Capernaum, he had responded to the faith of two people in a very powerful way. One, he healed a desperate woman of her incurable disease, and he raised from the dead a young girl belonging to the ruler of a synagogue. That was last week. Leaving that place, he heads southwest. Southwest, about 20 miles, to the place where he grew up, which is Nazareth. Now, some of you may be thinking, wasn't Jesus born in Bethlehem? Yes, he was born in Bethlehem of Judea, but he was raised in Nazareth of Galilee. That's where he grew up. In Mark 1.24, we are told that Jesus is referred to as Jesus of Nazareth. He's actually identified that way because that's where he grew up. That's where people knew he was from. So he returns home not to take a rest or to visit his family and friends, but as a part of his ongoing mission to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God and command the nation of Israel to repent and believe. That's why he's there. That's why he's in Nazareth. He did not come to Nazareth alone, but the text tells us that he came with his disciples. They were following him. 
And his followers would soon learn, as we'll see here in a moment in the text, a valuable lesson for the preparation or in preparation for the mission that Jesus was about to send them on. And we'll get to that in a coming week, Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 13, when he sends them out to proclaim that very gospel that he's proclaiming in Nazareth. On the Sabbath, it says, he began to teach in the synagogue. Verse 2, look back at the text with me. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. So after arriving in Nazareth, this is all background information, as he had done in all the other towns, Jesus waited until the Sabbath. The Sabbath was on Saturday. It was the Jewish day of corporate worship. It was when the people who followed Judaism gathered together in the temple. And it says he entered the synagogue. That is their temple. It's the Jewish place of worship. I only emphasize that to show you he is reaching out to the Jewish people specifically. And he's proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. He teaches there. Now, this was a common practice for the ruler of the synagogue to allow a visiting teacher or rabbi a chance to read and explain the scriptures to others. So Jesus takes advantage of this. When he goes from town to town, he waits for Saturday, he enters the synagogue, and as a recognized rabbi, in a sense, because he has a following, he is allowed to then take the scriptures, read them, and expand upon them. And gives him the opportunity to proclaim who he is, what he's come to do, the kingdom of God is at hand. Now the crowd that was there, in this case, would not have been unfamiliar with Jesus since that is where he grew up. That is where he grew up. In fact, as you'll see in a moment, they were convinced that they knew everything there was to know about Jesus. I mean, after all, they had watched him grow from a a little boy into this 30-year-old man. Apparently, during his young life, nothing special happened to make them think that he would be the Messiah one day. So, he didn't have this halo around his head as we see in some pictures. He wasn't walking around with a halo. No one saw Jesus as he was growing up and thought, I bet you that boy will grow up to be the Messiah someday. He just has something about him. No, that was not the case. That was not the case based on the response of the people there in Nazareth. And this is why, this is why they are so taken back by what they had recently heard about him. That is the reports about these amazing miracles. And they are shocked by how he is speaking to them with such authority and wisdom in this synagogue. They're shocked. They don't understand it. It says in verse 2, the second part, many who heard him were astonished. They were astonished. It means they were amazed or surprised at what they were witnessing. But, beloved, their astonishment quickly turned into suspicion. And that brings us to the first point or the first aspect of the surprising interaction between Jesus and his hometown. Suspicion. You know what that is, right? It's when you think something's not right. This does not compute suspicion. They had suspicion about Jesus. Many in that synagogue that heard Jesus speak, no doubt had known Jesus before all this commotion over him had broke out. And what they knew and what they were witnessing did not go together. Did not compute. It did not make sense to them. They were perplexed because... They were opposed to thinking the thought that there might be something actually special about this Jesus. This is apparent by the questions they begin to ask. So look back at the text at the end of verse 2. The response to Jesus' teaching is, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? The main thrust of these questions is an attempt to determine or figure out the source of Jesus' undeniable wisdom expressed through his teaching and his indisputable healing power made known to them by many witnesses. They want to know what the source is. (laughs) In other words, because they thought they knew who he was, 
having spent the last three decades living in the same town with him, they were unwilling to believe, that's a key word, unwilling, they were unwilling to believe or even consider that there was anything more to this guy than just the fact that he was another dude from Nazareth. This made them suspicious about how he was able to do what he was doing. The option that he might be the Son of God or the promised Christ was not something they were willing to consider, even though the current evidence supported that very reality. They never asked, beloved, who really is this? They never asked that question. Because as far as they were concerned, they already knew. And that brings us to the second aspect of the surprising interaction between Jesus and his hometown. Limitation. Limitation is simply the act of limiting something. Their preoccupation with trying to figure out where Jesus of Nazareth got his wisdom and power is a result of the limitations they have incorrectly assumed about his abilities and identity based on their familiarity with him and his family. Let me try that again. Their preoccupation with trying to figure out where Jesus of Nazareth got his wisdom and power is a result of the limitations they have incorrectly assumed about his abilities and identity based on their familiarity with him and his family. Look back at verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joses, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? They are saying, hey, listen, we know this guy. He is not special. That's what they're saying. He really is no different than any of us. We know that his abil- we know what his abilities are and they don't explain what is happening now. They don't. He is nothing more than a common laborer. Don't you remember? He's a carpenter, guys. He's a carpenter. He works with his hands. And he builds farming tools and furniture and houses. That's who he is. That's what they're saying. As far as they're concerned, that's the limits of his ability. Now, no doubt he was skilled in his trade, beloved. But someone who can handle and teach the law of God with such authority and superiority, or for that matter, heal diseases or cast out demons without even breaking a sweat, is not something a carpenter is trained to do, to say it simply. This would be like me being separated from my wife for a short period of time, only to come in contact with her again and find out that she now pilots Air Force One. Now, for those of you who know my wife, that is more funny uh, but for those of you who don't, then uh, well, she's afraid of flying. She's afraid of flying. And I'm sure she could learn how to pilot the plane, but she would never even entertain the thought. My wife does many things well. But flying around the president in his personal plane would certainly could not be one of them. You understand? So I know what I know about my wife. The idea that she would do that would just be outside of my reality. And that is the case with these folks in Nazareth. They just can't embrace it. They say in verse 3, Isn't this the son of Mary? <laughs> now this observation, beloved, is a far cry from what the demons have called him. Son of the Most High God, Mark chapter 5, verse 7. The Holy One of God, Mark chapter 1, verse 24. Those who grew up with him, isn't this just the son of Mary? 
It was normal for a man, by the way, and let me give you some context here that you might not be familiar with. It was normal for a man in Jewish culture to be identified as the son of his father, not the son of his mother. Now because of that, and because that's strange here in this text, some commentators believe that this remark implies that the rumors about Jesus' birth had spread. That is how he was conceived. And if you know the story, Joseph was not his natural father. Okay? If you're not sure about that, ask me about that later. But Joseph was not his natural father. And that means that Mary was pregnant before Joseph and Mary consummated the marriage. So rumors would spread about that, and what they would be is, this child was born out of wedlock. There's another man in the story that we don't know about that Mary messed around with. That would be the rumor if they didn't know that he was born of the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb. So this, is a, this could be a slam to Jesus, an insult. Your birth was illegitimate. Who do you think you are? Possible, but not certain. And to me, it seems a little bit out of the context to make that type of insult in normal conversation. I think it is more probable that the crowd was more familiar with Mary or Joseph was dead is another possibility. We don't know. And they are simply saying, hey, isn't this Mary's boy? That's all. Isn't this Mary's boy? We know where this guy came from. It's not royalty. It's not royalty. Now, the ability to climb the ladder of success, that is, go from rags to riches, right? That is really an American phenomenon. It is is our story. In Jesus' culture, and still in many cultures today, one's potential in life is or was greatly defined by what family or class they were born into. That's it, baby. You ain't going no higher. One writer says, a noble parentage, that is being well-born, was considered essential if one hoped to be considered great. Jesus was born into a modest, simple family. And they are certainly pointing that out. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and beyond that, the brother of James and Joses and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? So they're just going on to say, in fact, listen, we know all of his siblings. We know all of them. None of them have his type of power or wisdom. There is nothing special about his immediate family. So why in the world would he be so different or better than them? Where did he get it? That's what they're saying. Where did he get it? And that brings us to the final point, which is their conclusion was that he was not better than them. He was not better than his family. He was just a normal boy from Nazareth, which leads to their rejection. Look at the end of verse 3. I'll just read verse 3 for you again. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joses, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. What a sad and disappointing way for them to respond to Jesus, who came back to his hometown bringing the good news of the kingdom. They had come, beloved, face to face with the very Son of God, the promised Christ, the long-awaited hope of Israel, of the nation. And they were all, of all things, offended. That's it. That's the conclusion. They could not come up with any reasonable explanation in their eyes for Jesus' mighty words and deeds, so they took offense at him. The word for offense, and this might help you a little bit, comes from the Greek word scandalon. 
It means stumbling block. Stumbling block. From this Greek word, we get our English word scandal. Scandal. That's a situation or event that causes public outrage or disapproval. The verb form of the word means Jesus caused them to stumble. And in the present context, it carries the weight or the idea of they were put off or repelled by Jesus. (laughs) They were put off or repelled by Jesus. They were offended by Jesus. In other words, here's what they're thinking. Who does this guy think he is? Who does he think he is? We know him. And we know where he has come from. And there is nothing that we are aware of that gives him the right to be acting and talking this way. That's what's going on. They're in a sense saying, man, this this boy needs to come back down to reality. He needs to get his head out of the clouds and come to grips with who he really is. We're not sure how he's accomplishing these things, but one thing we're sure of, we aren't going to be his disciples. Why would we? He's one of us. Just another simple, ordinary Nazarene. That's what's going on. One writer says, The people of Nazareth see only a carpenter. Only a son of Mary. Only another one of the village children who has grown up and returned to visit. Sad story, guys. Verses 4 through 6 are simply the response of Jesus to this very disappointing rejection by those he grew up with. He says in verse 4, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Jesus, like many Old Testament prophets before him, was dishonored most by those who claimed to know him best. Now, typically this saying is true because people close to us, they know our past sins and failures, right? And they don't like to let us forget about it. So, when there's change in our life, it seems like even we come proclaiming the good news and all of this, Our family sometimes are the hardest people to convince because they're like, I know you. (laughs) I know what you've done. Yeah, I know, but I'm not that person anymore. No, 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 no. I know you. Okay? You understand that? That's kind of what the phrase means. But in this case, Jesus was without sin, beloved. So that's not what he's saying. He's not saying they look back on Jesus' life and thought, hey, he's just a sinner. That's not what's going on. He was sinless. So that was not the issue. For Jesus, it was this. It was the uneventful, common, and ordinary nature of his life prior to the start of his supernatural ministry. That people familiar with him could not forget. And they allowed that knowledge to keep them from embracing the new revelation they had just received, pointing to the fact of his extraordinary identity as the Son of God, as the Messiah they had been waiting for. That's what they couldn't get over. You're just too common for us, Jesus. We don't buy it. And so in verse 5 it says, He could do no mighty work there, except that He laid His hands on a few sick people and healed them. Just a few comments about this. Someone might try to make this verse say more than it should. Like, Jesus can only do miracles if someone has faith. Let me, give you, let me give you an important biblical rule for interpretation of Scripture. If your interpretation contradicts another passage of Scripture, then your interpretation is wrong. So whatever you came up with in this particular passage, if there is another passage or other multiple passages that contradict what you think this passage is saying, you're wrong. Because the Scriptures have one author. That is the Holy Spirit using human authors to record God's very words. God does not contradict himself. 
So just something to remember. Sometimes people will come to a passage, and when I talk about context, and this is so important, it's not only the context that passage is in, but it's the context of the entire Word of God. So if I'm understanding a passage here in Mark, and I interpret it one way, but there's something somewhere else in Mark, or in another book, that would contradict that, who's wrong, God or me? Me. So, some people might push this too far to say that Christ's hands were bound. Somehow he could not heal. Somehow God's power is controlled by human faith. He just stands there helpless. I wish I could do something. I wish I could. But you don't have faith. Hmm. That's not what it's saying. And we know it's not saying that because that would contradict other passages where miracles occur despite no mention of faith or even the context of unbelief. For instance, Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, or Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, or Mark chapter 6, verses 35 through 44. Take a look at those. Those are just a few. So what is the point here? It is simply this, that his desire, Jesus' desire and usual practice was to perform miracles in the presence of or in the context of faith, not obstinate unbelief and rejection. He didn't perform miracles to simply impress people. He could have, but that wasn't his M.O. He wasn't trying to impress people with his power, but rather to reveal and confirm his true nature, which Nazareth at that moment was unwilling to embrace. They were unwilling. A few did believe, the text tells us, and they came to him for healing. But most were offended and outright rejected him. And as a result of that, the great supernatural work he could have done was limited. It was limited. Verse 6, And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. He marveled. He wondered. He was amazed. He was amazed. One writer says, What amazes God about humanity is not its sinfulness and propensity for evil, but its hardness of heart and unwillingness to believe Him. That is the greatest problem in the world And herein lies the divine judgment on humanity. Beloved, the greatest obstacle to faith is not the failure of God to act. Oh, He act. He has acted in a mighty and powerful way. But it is the unwillingness of the human heart to accept God on His terms. Well, that's not the way I would have done it. Okay, but that's the way God did it. So in conclusion, as we look at this and try to wrap this up and try to apply it to our context today, one writer says this, the people of Nazareth represent Israel's blindness. Remember, he came to his people, the Jews, in the synagogue, and they represent what's going on. They represent what's going on in the nation as a whole. Their refusal to believe in Jesus pictured what the the disciples of Jesus would soon experience as we see in the text that follows this very section in chapter 6, verses 7 through 13, when he sends them out. And it also tells us what Mark's readers, not only back then, 2,000 years ago, but today, those of us reading Mark today, will experience in the advance of the gospel. To say it another way, the rejection at Nazareth is related to the subsequent mission of the twelve, which follows this passage in chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. The tension between faith and unbelief exists in both accounts. Because I'll just read you chapter 6, verse 11. This is he sending them out on their mission, and here's what he tells them. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, And then he gives them instructions. It's already assumed. You're going to experience the same type of things. 
This shows us that unbelief is the context in which the Christian mission advances and that rejection is an experience that is common to our Lord and to His church. So here's some things for you to think about. If people, even those that Jesus grew up with, were offended by Jesus and refused to believe in Him, (laughs) what do you think might happen when we present Him to people today? Just like the people in Jesus' hometown, many people think they already know who Jesus is. But their understanding is limited at best. And sometimes completely wrong. Completely wrong. Let me give you some ideas. This is what I've heard. Maybe you've heard similar things. Jesus was a good man. That's a limited explanation. He was a good teacher. Okay, he was. But there's certainly more to it than that. He was just a prophet. That's what the Islamic religion says. Just a prophet. By the way, what cults get wrong every time is who is Jesus. That's what they get wrong every time. JWs, Jehovah Witnesses, come to your house. And they will tell you Jesus Christ was not God. He actually, before he came to earth, was Michael the Archangel. Really? Okay. How about this? He's a moral leader who taught us how to treat one another. That's who Jesus was. (laughs) You know, golden rule. Treat others as you would want to be treated? That's why he came. (laughs) How about this? He was a revolutionary. All of these I've heard, by the way, and I've read them. Explanations for who Jesus was that are certainly misguided. Some say that he was just a misunderstood man who wanted nothing more but to reform in Judaism and became a victim of tragic circumstances. He just went too far and got himself killed. Beloved, when you present Jesus in all of his glory, (laughs) for some, suspicions will arise. And instead of questioning their incomplete or faulty understanding, they will become offended and they will reject the Jesus you are proclaiming. And I think I should, I want to make that distinction. They're going to reject the Jesus. You are proclaiming. Some people take that personally and they feel like I'm being rejected. No, they're rejecting the Jesus you are proclaiming because he doesn't fit with their understanding of who he is or who they want him to be. (laughs) On some of our literature for Summit, we have this statement. We are a church that refuses to compromise the gospel. What that means is we will not negotiate. This is not a bargaining process with the union. You give and take. I'm not, we don't do that with Jesus. We proclaim Him as He is. And we let the chips fall where they may. Beloved, that, re, that is important to us because, and here's why, and here's why we even have that statement on our literature. In many circles within Christendom, and I use that word loosely, the Gospel is regularly being compromised. And the one way this is done is by trying to remove anything that offends from the message. (laughs) Beloved, that's a recipe for disaster. The only way to preach a gospel that does not offend is to preach a Jesus that does not offend. And that is another Jesus, not the one in the Bible. Jesus offends, beloved. When you rightly understand Jesus' words and His missions, then you must also rightly understand who you and I really are apart from Christ. 
Let me give you a few things here to think about. Let's see. How about this? Wretched sinners deserving of hell. Ooh. Rebellious in our nature. Worthy of God's wrath. You know what? That is offensive, offensive, offensive. Jesus was brutally murdered on a cross and punished by His heavenly Father for sin, not His own. But for the awful sin of all those who recognize their hopeless situation and cry out to Christ for mercy, believing that through Him comes complete forgiveness of their sins and reconciliation to their holy Creator. Oh, it's not over yet. Jesus commands us to repent and believe. Turn to Him in trust and willingly place ourselves under His loving, sovereign rule. He is not asking. He is not suggesting. He is commanding. Offensive, offensive, just downright offensive. Jesus. So, let me drink one more glass of water here. I am burdened, beloved. When I go through a passage like this and we talk about the offensiveness of the gospel and the fact that it's being compromised, I am I am burdened. I am burdened for you and I am burdened for many people who have been taken up in these celebrity pastors who preach a gospel that even unbelievers are okay with. I was just talking to some friends and they were telling me about this particular individual and wanted to know what I thought. I just kind of let them talk and they're staunch unbelievers. They don't follow Christ. They haven't surrendered their life to Him. They, they haven't, haven't yet fallen to their knees and recognized their hopeless situation before Him. They haven't placed all their confidence in Him and His solution through the cross. And yet, their, their praise for this particular individual on television was amazing. They loved him. They liked to listen to him. How wonderful he was. <laughs> and there are many and many, many who watch men like this on a regular basis. Now, I have a question for you. If unbelievers can watch someone week after week proclaim supposedly the Word of God and never be offended. What does that say about the message that's coming out? What does it say? Well, if I was a betting man, I'd bet money that he isn't saying anything that would displease or offend them. Because the only way you and I are going to receive praise from an unbelieving world is to tell them what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. Do you see what I'm saying? So here's my encouragement to you, beloved. Be careful who you listen to. We live in a world where we have access to 50,000 voices. And it's easy if we're not paying attention to get caught up in this kind of stuff. People who are, have removed the offenses from the Word of God so that everyone will be happy. That's wonderful. So they can be happy all the way to hell. That's fantastic. No, it's not. This is what we need to do. We also need to be careful that because we live in a culture that says, don't you dare say anything that would offend me. You hear me? <laughs> yeah, I, I hear you. But just like my children, if they said that to me, because of my great love for them, I've got to tell you what the Bible says. And if it offends you, 
It offends you. Why don't you adjust so that it no longer offends you, but you embrace to it. Embrace it. That's what we're asking people to do. Yes, the gospel is offensive. Yes, Jesus is offensive. Until you come to the light. And then he's the greatest thing you've ever heard. You see what I'm saying? So we, as followers of our great Lord in Christ, need to say what the Bible says in love. In love. Because we care for people. Not because I'm trying to stick it to them. Because I care for them. And we need to not become discouraged if someone doesn't like it. Beloved, you can rest assured, if they hated Jesus, and they did, and they still do, they will hate His followers too. But don't respond to that. Don't respond this way, by shutting up or compromising the truth. There's going to be a few just passages up here on the screen during this time of reflection, just for you to think about those things, and to think about your stand for Christ. And to think about what that means as you follow Christ. I I always think about this one passage in John chapter 6, verse 66. You read through the Gospels. Jesus didn't have large crowds in the end, guys. In fact, every time he got up and spoke, more people left. They just continued to be offended by him. And in John 6, 66, it says a lot of them went away. He had said something else that was offensive. They didn't like it. And they left him. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, are you guys going to leave me too? (laughs) Peter says, no. Where are we going to go, Lord? Only you have the words of eternal life. Where are we going to go? That's got to be our response too. I'm not going to leave you. Only you have the words of eternal life. Regardless of rejection, regardless of people being frustrated with what I have to say, Out of love, I'm going to continue to be faithful to the message that's presented in the Word of God that hopefully, through the power of the Spirit, you would be converted and you would change from being offended to being saved. 